Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, I'm talking with Phil Sanderson, the managing partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, a venture capital firm that focuses on investing across a broad range of gaming companies in the gaming ecosystem. And they recently announced a fund of $235 million, which they will be investing into gaming companies and related technologies. So I've known Phil for years since he invested in my previous company, Next Games. We're going to talk about venture, how gaming has evolved, and how Phil sees the recent boom and this M&A activities affecting things going forward for the games industry. Before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. Hey, game developer. Are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players, as GameEye is a platform-independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place, ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out GameEye.com, that's GameYE.com, to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joachim. Doing well. Doing well. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Yeah, we're like just talking about not, not traveling. So you've been to Tahoe recently. Do you at all like stop and go anywhere like when you're driving over there or is it like how bad is it kind of like do you even want to you know go for a gas station or something like how is yeah it? it's fine i think being outside is okay you know people are pretty cautious in northern california which has been good and mm. uh trying to just stay healthy yeah yeah the same here in finland it's now it's so cold so it's it's everybody's at home i think that's gonna help so it's right. minus 22 Celsius today. Wow. So it's pretty, 
pretty damn freezing. I do miss being back in Finland. Had some good times there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we've been to the sauna a few times. Yeah. Yes, and in oh. the Baltic many yep. times. <laughs> exactly. Hey, let's go back a few years and and talk about your origin story in gaming. How did you end up in gaming? Uh, yeah. So I've always been a gamer. Um, ever since I had an Apple IIe in television, used to play uh, Dungeons and Dragons, paper version growing up, Castle Wolfenstein, Zork, Load Runner, you know, all the early, I had a Coleco, uh, just really early days in gaming. I always felt like I was a gamer and I got into finance after college but gravitated towards game finance and started doing that as early as 1993 at Robertson Stevens, working with M&A and IPO candidates like um, Microprose and EA and Broderbond and uh, companies like that. Then went to Harvard Business School. And after that, got into venture capital and really started focusing on gaming. That was in 1997. So I've been doing game finance for about 25 years. Not a lot of people have. And I've seen the industry evolve over time. It's come a long way. Yeah, it has. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually doing a, a panel in Pocket Gamer in February with the ex-CEO of Microprose, Wild Bill Steely. I don't know. Oh, if you yeah. Know God. He's got a bigger beard than you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I worked with Gilman Louie on that. That was when he merged Spectrum Holobyte into microprose that was in 93 it's a long time ago but uh the flight sims were were amazing then they're amazing today too it's a lot of fun yeah yeah i want to get playing those i I think it feels like just it's not something like uh i'm used to much mobile gaming where everything's so convenient like picking up a flight simulator is sort of like the opposite (laughs) we've seen some mobile flight simulators that are really good so starting to catch up yeah yeah. So like if you think about like shifting to to kind of like investing and you went to finance back in the day and saw that that field what really like inspired you to kind of like build a career in that sector. Yeah. Look, I think you always want to find something that you love doing and if you do you never work a day in your life. So I guess I'm lucky that I can test play games, work with gaming entrepreneurs, watch them grow, help them in many ways. And it's a field that's just fascinating in in a lot of different areas. You know, it used to be a niche category and, you know, a few hundred million people played games. They consider themselves to be a gamer. And most people define gamers as hardcore gamers. But today, about a third of the world plays games almost an hour a day. Mm. And Depends on who you want to define as a gamer. Somebody who plays games, Candy Crest can be a gamer. It's just somebody who plays games. So it's great just being in an industry that is the fastest growing consumer trend in the world today. And one where you see the biggest unicorns, Playtica, going public today at mm. a massive valuation. I mean, it's this is where the puck is going. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. Use a Finnish uh, Finnish term. <laughs> yeah, it's good, it's good. Your journey into VC, like you were doing gaming deals, but what was the the kind of like the turning point there where you moved over to VC? Yeah, Yeah, I I think um, I was a financial advisor as an investment banker for five years, but I also had some small entrepreneurial ventures that I started on my own. 
Mm. And I always saw venture capital as the midpoint of being a financial advisor and an entrepreneur. You know, I've, I spent a lot of time in the venture industry as a venture capitalist, but I was also on the board of the National Venture Capital Association in Washington, D.C. for the four-year term, representing our industry in Congress. And I looked at a lot of the data in venture capital. There just aren't that many venture capital firms or even venture capitalists. There's about, you know, 1,500 venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, probably about 3,000 in the U.S. But venture-backed companies constitute almost 20% of the GDP of the United States. Some of the biggest companies in the United States are venture-backed, like Google and Microsoft and Facebook. Mm. So our industry is a critical component of the growth of not only the U.S., but also countries like Finland and elsewhere throughout the world. Um, What's interesting is the government really doesn't appreciate or understand how the venture industry works. So we're constantly saying, let us do our jobs and keep the company growing and don't interfere. We're not a hedge fund. Don't treat us like hedge funds, you know, these types of things. So the venture industry is just a critical component of so many industries. I loved, I loved what it offered from a high level, as I just mentioned, but I really loved working with entrepreneurs on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I'm in an enviable position, I think, where I can talk to a thousand companies a year in my category of gaming and really choose or mutually decide with the entrepreneur how we want to work together over a six to eight year period in many cases, which is the early stage. And it's so fun to be able to work with a company, which has a whole unique unique set of challenges and growth opportunities, and then work with another and another and have a handful to work with consistently and, and really take part in their journey. It's not always easy, but it's an exciting, exhilarating industry. It is. That's like, I've been seeing that now since two years ago, started doing angel investing, that, that kind of like all those opportunities there. It's sort of like something that you can be on so many journeys at the same time and see so many cool things getting built and learning. Like that's at, at least for me, been, been the biggest takeaway is that you learn so much from these people. True, constantly. So thinking about like going into like what you're doing right now, with Griffin. Before we go to like how that came up, can you introduce Griffin Gaming Partners to the audience? Absolutely. So we started the fund uh, and the firm in the beginning of 2019. And really because gaming, uh, you know, is such a fast growing category. It was underserved. The entrepreneurs were not getting the capital that they needed in this industry, which is growing so quickly. I was investing at prior funds but only could do so much in gaming and really felt the need to want to start a fund dedicated in this category. And I had worked with my two partners over the years pretty consistently. So Peter Levin, who is one of my partners, was at Lionsgate for five years. And while he was there, we invested in five companies together, sat on three boards, including Next Games, and were like-minded in our approach to working with entrepreneurs, the growth of the industries, and how we wanted to work together. So we teamed up and also uh, teamed up with Lion Tree through Nick Tuasto. And Nick and I had worked together as on the banking side, and uh, Peter had worked with Lion Tree. So the three of us were a natural. I, I've been a venture capitalist my whole career. You know, Peter was an operator, and Nick is a banker, as an advisor. So the three of us had complementary skill sets. So we came together to form Griffin Gaming Partners. And you know, we we're fortunate enough to get some of the largest game and media companies as LPs. Um, as well as some major family offices, institutions, and so forth. 
And our approach is investing in early stage companies, oftentimes the first institutional money in, as well as some later stage companies, doing infrastructure investments for gaming, as well as developers and publishers, and um, investing domestically and around the world. And so that strategy has played out very well. And we've made a number of investments you can see on our website. We have uh, we've actually invested in 14 companies so far, and um, so they're they're doing very well. Mm. It's like I met the team recently. Like talk to everybody, just you, Peter, and Nick, and then you have an, this extensive team of associates, venture partners. It's it's a really big team, and like I haven't I haven't really seen anybody start off with such a big team in gaming. Like. Then yeah. what, we have 11 yeah. people, you know, in our organization so far, there's just a lot of opportunity. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're talking to so many companies in so many different areas around the world. And, you know, our team works with our companies pretty extensively, doing research for them, market studies, helping with recruiting, play testing. So, yeah, I think you really need a, a big, a big team to be able to, you know, fulfill the promises you have for portfolio companies, but also just find opportunities to invest. Yeah. Where do you see that kind of teams, the teamwork evolving from there? Like thinking also like your focus area, you're looking at deals, you're working with the portfolio companies on the boards. What's the yeah. future look like? The future of the team in terms of yeah. growing it out? Yeah, yeah. And, and what you guys are doing as a team. Yeah, I mean, look, I, we're seeing more and more opportunities So we'll continue to do that. I think as the portfolio grows, there'll be more and more work to do with each company. Yeah, I think I think the team is right size. We'll probably add a few more people. But when you see a thousand companies a year, there's a lot of work to do. Mm. And just evaluating those and trying to figure mm. out the ones that you want to work with is is a challenge, right? And, yeah, and, and helping the existing ones as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Then thinking about this this thing that I've noticed as an angel investor, like There's a lot of deals happening, and it's not always easy to get into like some interesting deal where there could have been an angel allocation. <laughs> I I missed out on the, the allocation, and uh, maybe I was like clear enough that I I'd want to invest. The deal was there, but I didn't get picked for the deal. Yeah, uh, how do you plan to to win sort of like these competitive funding rounds? There's a lot of money now going through venture capital into gaming at the moment. It's true. You need competitive advantages in any market that you're in. Ours are, you know, we've got a handful of competitive advantages. One of those is um, we've got a lot of experience in working with companies and um, and our networks are very broad. So if you want to recruit a senior member of a team, you know, we can help do that. And we've done that in many cases, bringing in C-level employees or even you know, developer level employees into companies. We can also help extensively with Corp and BizDev. So Nick, who's an M&A advisor at LionTree, speaks with many companies in the market and knows where the market trends are, who the buyers are, these types of things. Offering that type of advice to companies can be pretty critical in their growth. They may or may not choose to hire LionTree, but they're getting his advice and his thoughts and feedback as a portfolio company. Third, you know, Peter has done more IP integration work with companies than anybody. And he, he did that for five years at Lionsgate and you know, even did it before that when he was at Nerdist Industries and so forth. So 
you know, IP can play a major role in many of these games. Fourth, we've got a very vast strategic LP base, about 17 major corporations around the world who both on the technology and on the content side in gaming and in uh, media. And if a company wants to, you know, license or extend its IP into a TV show or movie, we've got LPs who can do that. Or vice versa, if they want to integrate in IP from our LPs into their game, we can help with that too. And our portfolio companies have pretty vast distribution for games around the world and um, in different geographies. And they've helped our companies with that as well. And then having a Koretsu of portfolio companies focused on this area can also help investments that we make because they could be working, for example... If you are a company that's moving into the the match three category and you want to share best practices and, you know, around UA and CPI, we can create a, a forum with two or three of our companies who are in that category as well and share best practices and ideas and help accelerate, you know, your growth in that area. That you can do that when you're a, a sector focused fund in gaming. So we do have many competitive advantages. They're recognized by our portfolio companies and we've gotten in in very competitive situations because as you, as you identified, it is competitive. Mm. Um, and I think, um, you know, really good entrepreneurs realize money is not just money. It, you really want to have value add from your investors at the angel level, all the way up through, you know, the time of exit. Yeah. I, I totally agree with like sharing knowledge, doing some of the heavy lifting for, for a seed stage companies, like a big deal for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then thinking about your work, as a VC, your day-to-day, what do you think really makes a, a great venture capitalist from a founder's perspective, from your own perspective? What do you think? So there are different answers. From a financial, financial and fiduciary responsibility, I think it's really important to find and source great opportunities and close them and have them be part of the portfolio. That drives returns and making the right divest investment and divestment decisions. That's what a, an LP really wants, a, an investor in our fund. From yep. an entrepreneurial perspective, they want a venture capitalist who understands their business. It can help them with advice and in real time, you know, with financing, bringing financiers to the table for follow-ons, bringing recruiting candidates to the table and bringing advice when it comes to strategy and so forth. And even more importantly, if the company needs to pivot, the venture capitalists will understand why and be supportive as opposed to saying, that's not what we invested in, we're out, which can actually kill a company in many cases. So you really want to have that knowledge base and understanding. So there are different answers from an entrepreneurial perspective or from an LP, but we serve different, two different customers. Those are both of our customers and we try to do both well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like that's often something that the founders don't have all the visibility into like that area of what the VC is doing. Yeah, I would highly encourage entrepreneurs to check references of venture capitalists before they take their money by talking to the CEOs who they work with and who they've worked with in the past. That's the best way because you can really find out how they acted in different situations and and that really speaks to who they are reputationally. Yeah, I think you mentioned a really interesting point there, like kind of understanding what a gaming studio, for instance, would do in a pivot uh, moment. Mm-hmm. That's very specialized knowledge that yes. the VC would have. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Then thinking about like that that deal when it's happening and you're, you're 
discussing a price and a valuation of, of a deal, giving a term sheet. How do you, or let's put it this way, like how does price and valuation matter for you guys? Well, uh, we will look at it in relation to where the exit is and what our potential return could be based on various outcomes. So we'll build a model based on the company model that they give us and and try to see where, they'll, where they will be in three, five, seven years, and then try to extrapolate based on what the exit multiples are in M&A and IPO in some cases, and try to see what their potential exit could be and what kind of a return that would give us in a best case, middle case, or worst case scenario. And ultimately, we'd like that to average out to be roughly 30% IRR, which is you know a target that we'd like to have for the fund um, on a gross basis. And you know if the valuation is too high and that IRR doesn't seem to pencil out, it's probably too high of a valuation. So that's the, the basis of where we come up with valuation. But then we also will look at comparable uh, venture financings and see where the rest of the market is to see if that's fair. And also, mm-hmm. you know, real-time exits in the market, uh, IPOs, M&A exits and things like that. So it's um, on later stage investing, it's done more with a discounted cash flow and a financial analysis. Sure. Earlier stage, there's a much ranger, much wider range of outcomes that can occur. And you sort of say, well, this is a home run case. This is an upside case. This is a base case. This is the downside case. This is a go out of business case. What do we think the chances are of each one doing a weighted average? You know, you try to just figure it out. Yeah, that, like, like one, one detail that really comes often for me when I'm talking to founders is kind of the dilution sensitivity of founders. Mm-hmm. Like, what are your thoughts as like you're seeing a cap table where it, there's going to be a long journey, a lot of rounds most likely before there's an exit? Like, what are you talking to founders about dilution? Like, how do you advise them regarding, like, if they are very dilution sensitive? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, this sort of plays into, you could grow a company organically and not have dilution, but then companies can pass you by in a, in a given field. Or you can have a smaller piece of a larger pie, assuming that pie becomes larger by taking venture money, but you really need to assume that you'll use the capital to grow through user acquisition, the right CAC to LTV ratio, which will allow you to raise money at a higher valuation, which will increase asset value faster. So it's a model. And you know, sometimes you can raise money at a higher valuation from mm-hmm. some other financing sources who are just money and maybe may not add enough and may not grow that pie as yeah. a value-added venture capital as well. It's really based on as an entrepreneur, if you believe that a value-added venture investor who may not have as much of a higher valuation will actually grow that pie larger. And that's really just, again, based on talking to entrepreneurs and, you know, understanding if that's actually played out and worked, you know, for, for other, you know, case other portfolio companies within that existing uh, venture fund. Yeah, that's a good point. This is an off-schedule question, but I, I wanted to ask you about the whole M&A like spree and craziness that happened in mm-hmm. 2020 with the with a lot of the the Swedish public companies going out and buying stuff. Like, yeah. what do you think about what's going on in the industry at the moment regarding M and A? You know, companies are trading at pretty high multiples in the public markets, and they're being able to buy 
companies at lower multiples. So there's immediate value that's being created because they're trading at that same EBITDA multiple or revenue multiple. So there's been a lot of M&A recently, but there's also been a lot of high valuations. Um, look at Unity and Roblox and Discord and other companies that are, you know, valued at eight to $40 billion and growing, play Tika today. So there's a lot of stock to be able to purchase companies with. And again, they're buying at a discounted multiple and they're immediately trading at that existing multiple of the company as they should, because they can, there's this positive synergies and, you know, it's expanding from there. So we're seeing the start of the M&A SPAC IPO boom within the gaming sphere. And I believe it's going to continue. Do you have, because you lived through the dot-com era, mm-hmm. like how, how close is what we're doing right now for the industry? Like, have we learned from that period sort of going into this kind of crazy mode that is happening in 2020 and 21? I think so. There's some similarities. Look, I think there's some companies that are overvalued, but underlying that there are core fundamentals and, and there's users, there's assets that are growing in, you know, 99, 2000 before the bigger bubble that you didn't have revenue, you had market share. Yep. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there was no underlying principles in most of those companies, except for a few like Amazon and so forth. Today, I think while there are companies that are overvalued, there's many that are undervalued. One thing that's not clearly understood about our industry within gaming is that we are like a SaaS company, but more predictable in many cases. Mm. Because once you acquire a user and that user stays for 30 days plus, you're going to keep that user for many, many years. In many cases, as long as you just keep feeding more and more content. You know, a lot of the LTVs that we look at with the CAC to LTV ratio are based on three years. But we all know a lot of those users, once they're paying, stay for up to 10 years. And it's like an enterprise software company. When you acquire a user, it's a bookings. And you recognize that revenue rateably every quarter for as long as that that person stays and pays. And they they stay in so many years. Look at Candy Crush and many other companies like it. When you've got a cohort that's paying, it only churns 1% to 2% per month. So once there's enough time and people start to see these cohorts and say how long they are, I think the institutional market is going to look at these companies and say, this is a true asset that they're recognizing over time. And the difference between this and enterprise software companies, and I say enterprise software companies because it it traditionally has been the biggest part of of technology in the last 10 years. You spend a lot of money up front and then you start to have a sales force and sell, and then you can create a a revenue base and then you you have a bookings, you you recognize that revenue base going forward. In gaming, you only spend a lot of money once you've got that positive cocktail TV ratio. Within mobile game, I mean, AAA games are a little bit different on on consoles, but those are going to be a hit, and they consistently have been. But it's a more, it's a it's a more predictable model in gaming, and it's undervalued in in many senses in terms of what the value of the user base is. I believe. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Let's go back a bit to the to the seed stage and talk about like companies companies moving from stage to another. You've observed a lot of companies going from seed to series A stage. What are the the shared characteristics of these companies that managed to move from seed to to series A, in your opinion? Yeah. Well, okay. You can look at it from the infrastructure and from the publishing side. So on the publishing side, what we'll look at is if they're a 
a mobile game company will want to see how their beta numbers are in a English speaking country that mirrors US and in Europe. So Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and we'll look at the ARP DAOs. We'll look at the uh, retention rates on a D1, day seven, D30 basis. And and look at the CAC to LTV ratio. If those KPIs mirror a top 100 mobile game company, they're going to raise money and raise it very quickly. If they are on their way to that, which oftentimes happens, and they'll say, we haven't integrated our PVP mechanic yet. We don't have sales and you know events yet and so forth. We can tell that the ARP DAOs will increase over time. We're more concerned with retention rates and engagement early on because we know you can add on the monetization typically. So we're very KPI driven when you move from a seed to a series A, typically in mobile games. In an in a infrastructure play, it's more about the adoption of customers, converting a beta customer to a paying customer, seeing engagement and an increase of a contract, those types of things. It can be earlier as well. It can be just moving to an MVP and understanding whether we think this is the right product for the market. That's pre, pre-metrics. But usually when you move to series A and you raise you know, five to 15 million, you, you sort of look for those KPIs. I'm a little old school too. A lot of companies are considering themselves to be seed stage, but they've raised five to 15 million. To me, that's just an A, even if it's the first round. I mean, seed yeah. to me is, is, you know, raising a half a million to $2 million and getting an MVP out. Like mm. That's a seed round, you know? And people like to, it's fashionable to call their, their series A a seed round when they raise 10 million or 15 million. They call it seed, but I mean, whatever. It's just semantics. It doesn't mean anything, honestly. Mm. Sure. It's a number. <laughs> what yeah. do you use it for? Uh, so think about the the companies that you've invested in over the years. And have you developed kind of like these sort of like signs of what points to, to positive development and to, to negative development? Let's think about the ones that aren't the most obvious ones, maybe. In terms of how I identify them? Mm. Yeah. I do think there's a methodology that we've used over the years, such as anything that you experience in the due diligence phase Mm. of a two to six week period before you invest in a company is only magnified in that six to eight year period you're going to be working with them. Because it does take six to eight years to get to liquidity in early stage companies. So that is a truism. And, you know, you sort of have to magnify those small things because you just don't have that many data points, right? That's something we've learned over time. Look, I I think our early stage business is centered around two things, teams and metrics. You know, the markets are there generally. And a lot of technology investing, you sort of look at some people put markets up there on par with teams. Is the TAM big enough? But we all know gaming is so big in all these different categories. It's rarely an issue. So on the teams, when you've been in the industry for so long, a lot of the top teams come to you. So that's the easy part of our business. Like we built up that equity over a 25 year period and now they come. So, you know, I'll give you an example. When Jason Citrone had sold Open Faint and was starting Discord before it was called, um, you know, Phoenix Guild. And then it was Hammer and Chisel after that. But two people called me his first week of raising money and said, you got to go meet with Jason. So I sat down with Jason and committed in that meeting to invest in his seed round, which was a note at the time. But it was very clear. Look, if you've got someone who's very driven, who sold a company for over $100 million in your category, uh, it's a no-brainer, right? And I actually, he asked he asked me to help fill out his seed round because he didn't know how. And I brought in other people who 
came into the seed round and so forth. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to fill. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you saw, they just raised money at $7 billion. So those are types of ones that, you know, you do those all day. The harder part of our business is, is, and then we get tons of deals. Like we say, we have a thousand companies come to us every year. We look at all the metrics and so forth. We try to figure out, do those metrics line up? I find the most interesting part of our business, the whiteboard, the open space saying, okay, let's take a step back. Even though we're drinking from a fire hose, what's happening out there that we should go proactively and go find, mm-hmm. you know? Like, where are the games for women? I mean, more women play mobile games and spend more money, but what, what do you have, Candy Crush? Let's go find those games, you know? And, and uh, we found tactile games with Lily's Garden, who was doing it right, you know, and, and focused on that demographic. So that's something that I find is it's hard to do to, to try to remove yourself from the day-to-day, but it's important because that's where sometimes you find some of the most interesting opportunities as well. Yeah, that's interesting to like think about also like the 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 founder who already did a company. Well, Jason is a pretty big exception of yeah, probably sure. what walked through the door. But like when that happens, it usually is a signal that they have an itch to scratch, sort of like that they're back in the game. Mm-hmm. So I think like after that, it's sort of then you want to see like what what are they actually like thinking about as a team, what they're building. I would say repeat entrepreneurs on the whole are more successful. There've been studies on that. There've been studies that female CEOs are more successful. You know, when you start to look through that data, you say, okay, let's, you know, go with the data. Yeah, it is. So in gaming, what do you, what do you believe will be the area where we're going to see the most growth during this year, next year and 2023 sort of going forward? Well, look, mobile gaming is the fastest growing area within gaming. I think it's going to continue to grow. I wonder about advertising within gaming because IDFA, if that comes into play, would be a major setback for the industry, both on revenue side and the customer acquisition side. Um, We'll see if, you know, Apple leads the charge in taking away data used for marketing based on privacy concerns. So we'll see where that goes. But I do think mobile games will continue to be Fastest growing, we'll start, we'll continue to see more cross platform games. A lot of the traditional console games moving over to mobile, the PC games moving over to mobile. I like the areas of artificial intelligence within content creation. And I think probably more companies in that space, we're looking and we're invested and we're talking to more as well there. And there have been innovations around the casual puzzle space. Um, which is interesting. And, you know, CPIs are going up for traditional bubble shooters and match three games. So there'll be some alternatives that are created in that category too, um, in mobile. And see what else? Probably more games oriented to women. I think that's another theme that's going to continue in 2021. What do you think about Roblox and that whole sector of creator sort of economy kicking off inside gaming? Yeah, Roblox is an incredible company. The metaverse is a major trend. We've we've already backed companies who are developing for the metaverse and for Roblox, and that will continue as well. Uh, Super Social is one of those companies. And Epic is doing a lot in, in the space as well. They're expanding into different areas because they're becoming the next social media platform as opposed to social media platforms like Facebook who offer 
you know, Instagram and other types of things are starting off their gaming. It's interesting. But when you're a game platform that everybody goes to, and then you layer on social media and traditional media, it's a lot more powerful. I can see both platforms becoming bigger than Facebook over time, which is hard to say, but they're moving in that direction in terms of market cap and so forth. We're also doing investments in the music area. So Wave is one of our investments. And look, the things that, you know, Lil Nas X and and, uh, Roblox and Travis Scott in Fortnite are examples where, you know, you've got millions of people who are willing to, to consume traditional media within the metaverse. That's a great category. We're really, really big in that, in that area. I've done a lot in music space over time. So we're music and gaming are merging too. Yeah. One final question about gaming for you. Like, what do you think about the, the whole, like Apple's activity with, with Fortnite and also with IDFA coming like what are your thoughts there like how's that going to play out this year yeah i think you know i've seen sort of um, the shelf space wars emerge over time where it used to be you know major publishers like ea and activision would buy 51% of a developer because and they own the shelf space and the game stops and so forth and that's and you had to be you had to do a deal with ea and activision or you couldn't make it But then things moved online and the new shelf space became Apple and Google with their stores. And they were pretty critical to get your distribution and it was worth the 30%. And they also provided the payment infrastructure and so forth. But, you know, is it worth the 30% today? Probably not. And so large companies are saying, I don't, and, and, and Apple has cut deals. They, they don't mm-hmm. publicize them and they, and other companies pay less than 30%. And Epic is saying, why are we doing, why are we paying 30%? So they're entering in this war and saying, basically to the DOJ, do you want to have Apple as a, as a monopolist, like, like Microsoft was before? So they're, they've pushed Apple into that sphere and we'll see how it plays out. Who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it's a political game at this point. I think the same is true for IDFA. Nobody knows where this is going to play out. There's a real problem with privacy today. And they're, and Apple has said they're trying to address it. I don't know if they're going to address it. <laughs> But yeah. they have to say they're trying to address it. Whether they do or don't is, is yet to be seen. But if you take away, you know, all these tracking mechanisms to be able to do targeted advertising, it's going to make advertising less effective. But the market will f- figure itself out. Mm. Uh, you know, online advertising is such a massive area that we don't know where things will shake out with Apple, Facebook, and Epic. But you've got these giants We're trying to battle it out. And unfortunately, you've got a, a federal government who's trying to navigate it all, yeah. who doesn't understand entrepreneurship or yeah. startups or gaming mm-hmm. or advertising. So yeah. it's kind of a mess. <laughs> but you know, but the one thing about innovation, people will always innovate and find opportunities to expand. So I'm, you know, even if IDFA goes into effect, I'm still optimistic about the advertising market. It's just it just may take a may take a, a step backwards, you know, for a short time. Yeah, it'll balance it itself out, I think. Mm-hmm. Hey, final questions for you, Phil. Yeah. What's what's your favorite book and why? Uh probably Dune. Um, I love science fiction. I like the whole geopolitical economic storyline. I've read all of um Dune and and Frank Herbert's son's books as well. So there's like 18 of them. I probably read them all twice. Um, okay. I'm kind of looking forward to the next movie coming out. I know that's been yeah. late, but, it looks uh, good. 
Yeah. yeah. And I love science fiction. And I just, I like, I mean, it's like gaming to me, you know, it's a mm-hmm. fantasy. I, I do a lot of running. I listen to audiobooks. So I run four 100 mile races every summer. I just ran a 240 mile race three months ago, nonstop. And uh, I'll listen to audiobooks for hours. Yeah. <laughs> Many hours. So, yeah. Yeah. It's great. You can just yeah. watch the scenery and dig into sci fi as you're exactly. running. Yeah, it's a perfect day for me. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? Yeah, I think uh, I kind of define myself through lifelong learning, um, reinvention of myself, and you know, pushing myself in massive physical extremes. So running 97 hours nonstop, well, there's four hours of sleep in that 97 hours, but that's... You know, but I think, look, reinvention is a big one, right? I basically had a great job within venture capital and said, you know what? I, I just need to completely change this. Like there's a huge opportunity out there. I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to start a new fund. I'm going to just go for it. And that's, this is what entrepreneurs do. I feel we're an entrepreneur. All three of us as partners, we're entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. We're doing the same thing that these game startups are doing. We're leaving what we're doing before. We're saying, I love this category. I believe in this vision. I'm going to go for it. And it's really important to, if you believe in yourself, reinvent yourself and, and reinvigorate yourself. I think that's a lesson that we've all done. Many of us on who are yeah. listening here have done that before and can relate, relate to it. Mm. Um, we're all entrepreneurs in that sense. And um, mm. yeah, I, that's kind of the way I define myself. Yeah. Yeah. I also like just remind myself that, yeah, so many People who've started funds, they are entrepreneurs as well. Mm-hmm. It is a startup that you're building, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, Phil, thanks so much for, for all this. But the last question is like, what's the best way for founders to get in contact with you and Griffin? Yeah. Well, they can certainly reach out on email. I'm phil at griffingp.com, G-R-I-F-F-I-N-G-P.com. And you can also see um, our companies and our philosophy on our website, which give you some good background. Love to hear from you. And uh, you can really appreciate being on the show. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, it was. You know, I love what you're doing with the podcast. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Take care. Talk to you soon Absolutely. again. Okay. Ciao. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again, Phil, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please do follow or hit subscribe in your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is online. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, which goes out every Friday, you should definitely check it out by going to elitegamedevelopers.com newsletter. So I'm actually collecting questions now from the audience for these special Ask Me Everything episodes that will start going out soon. So look out for those and subscribe to the newsletter and I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.